Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today. Today I have Josh from looking at Deanna Barker's case against God's existence. What's up, Josh? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It seems like you're in a very Chelsea mood with like the Chelsea shirt and the Chelsea scarf in the background. So yeah, I, I'm really buffed. I mean, we beat we beat Brentford in the morning at 3 a.m. <laughs> I woke up and watched that game. I and it was it was quite fun. We did bring on like three academy players who just haven't played Chelsea football at all. Because like half the team's out with COVID, but I mean it is what it is. We get we get the win, so I'm not complaining at all. <laughs> I saw like the last ten minutes and saw Pulisic like drew a penalty, and I was like, ah, nice, go Chelsea. Yeah, so, it was definitely yeah. a very good win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so today we're gonna be looking at um, the debate that Parker did and um, does God exist with Nick Peters? It should be linked down below. But Josh, do you have any like preliminary thoughts before we dive into Dan's opening statement? I think that it is a very interesting debate. I, I didn't watch the entire one. I just watched uh, Dan Barker's opening and Nick's uh, opening. But I, I really think that is um, quite interesting, kind of the different approaches. I don't know much about Dan Barker before, so this was kind of a new kind of introduction to who Dan Barker is as well. And unfortunately, I don't necessarily think that that introduction was a very pleasant or at least did him any justice or did him any good, perhaps. But I think it's going to be an interesting thing to talk about in something where we might be able to get some productive conversation about and it might raise some good ideas which we might be able to kind of work around yeah well we're gonna dive right into this we also we both really enjoy dan and what he says we're obviously gonna disagree and this is cool we'll just go this one this one's better i was trying to figure out the best screen layout we're gonna dive right in so the speed got bumped up to one and a half speed so it's gonna be a little bit faster when dan's talking but we're gonna dive into it so here we go Thank you, Nick. Very articulate. Thank you, Atheist Nighthawk. Thank you, Baptist Ministries. During my rebuttal, I will respond to Nick's remarks. I used to preach, as you know, that God exists, but after a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, I eventually saw the light. I threw out all the bathwater, and I discovered there's no baby there. I write about my story in the book, Godless. And I will tell you why tonight. I don't believe in a God. But really, if God exists, why are we having a debate about it? Why does this all-powerful God need arguments? and proofs. Why not just reveal himself to me directly and to you directly? Is he too weak to speak for himself? This all-powerful God needs Nick to argue for him using just words. I offer this very debate tonight as one evidence against the existence of God. Nobody knows if God exists. Nick doesn't know it. If he does, then I would know it too. What Nick has is a belief. It's theism, is the belief in a God. Theism okay, what do you want to say here with this first part, Dan? Dan, wow, I'm calling you Dan already. Josh. <laughs> I, I suppose the coldness of the weather in both our countries hopefully doesn't freeze our brains completely. But <laughs> but I suppose the first thing we could talk about is perhaps the difference between the few questions that he raises, because he raises, my glasses seem a bit unbalanced today, but whatever. It seems that there's a difference between the questions, why we should uh, have the debate or why should we have an argument for God? Why doesn't God reveal himself? And why does Nick need to argue for God? Because while they do seem very similar, they do seem to be pointing towards different answers because it's possible that God does not need any arguments to show his existence or he doesn't need any arguments for him in order for him to exist. But at the same time, he also does not need a Nick to argue for him. Or even, on the other hand, it could you could see the sense or in a similar way that God needs someone to argue for him. And I'm not saying that that's true, but at the same time, he doesn't need arguments. So it seems that each individual question that Dan's raising are indeed pointing towards different things. So when he asks, why is Nick here debating? Why does the debate exist? Or why doesn't God just show himself? Although they're similar, are indeed very different questions and we have to approach them mm -hmm. individually. 
Yeah, that's helpful because I think that when we're listening to Dan's opening statement, what he does a lot, as you're going to see as we progress through this video, is he asks a lot of questions but doesn't present a lot of arguments. So he'll say, like, we have God in the Bible, seems pretty bad. Questions like, what's going on here, Christians? But he doesn't present any arguments. You know, the same thing with, like, the problem of evil or, like, in this case, defined hiddenness. It's, this is, like, kind of like what Dan does. He just throws, at least in this opening statement, he throws a lot out. He doesn't really defend much, but he just kind of asks a bunch of questions, which is fine, but it's not really a good argument for anything. But I mean, we can address like the question of like, why debate God, if God exists? Like if God exists, why wouldn't he just like let everyone like reveal himself in a way that everyone just knows that he exists? And I think it's always to do to really like go against Dan's point is just show that God would have some plausible reasons that he would be to some degree hidden. Um, so like, I think for like believers, there's things like God allowing us to participate in his work. Like, what would be the point of, like, science or philosophy or moral ethics if God just gave us everything we needed and we didn't need to work with each other or anything like that? If he just gave it all in one big poof, um, it seems like that would, wouldn't allow us to participate in his work. Because um, if he gave us everything that we needed, we just wouldn't need each other. And it seems like a good thing to have relationships with each other and then, like, a deeper relationship with God because of that as we, like, pursue God. And then there's also, like, reasons, like, God may be hidden in non-theists, like, them forming, like, improper relationships or abandoning the relationship later in life. Um so that's just things like those are just a few things I think about when I'm like, well, God has plausible reasons to some degree to remain hidden. And you also have to consider that like Dan argues that like God's just hidden and no one knows that God exists, but he's going against most people across most of history. And this is a point that I think is often neglected is like most people believe in God and a lot of people have claimed to experience God. So Dan's really going against the common trend. And like, I'm not saying that disproves him, but it's just like, that's something to think about in this context. I definitely agree with you here. And I think that one of the things which is very interesting as well about what Dan says is that he raises a very interesting question, which is, does God actually need questions? And of course, I don't want to be a throwing in doubt the usefulness of apologetics when both our channels have apologetics in them. But but I mean, there is this really big question about how actually significant is the need of arguments for the existence of God and or at least in faith. And I, I think that the arguments are helpful in developing one's faith, but they aren't the be all and end all of the situation. A lot of people, if apologetics did not exist, would be still believe in what they believe in. It's not really going to change anything. And in the same mm -hmm. way, when we believe in things with existential significance, we normally don't come to them via purely rational reasons. A lot of people that I know, and I'm the head of house in Shaftesbury, so I, in my school, so basically I interact with loads of different kids and some of them, I think, have lost their paths in some degree. And I'm not just saying this from a Christian perspective, but when you see a kid going to like Lang Wai Fong and, and that's kind of like the nightclubs and like dr underage drinking all the time, you're like, well, why on earth are they doing it? It's, it's filling that gap of meaning in their lives. It has that existential significance, like what God might have in their Christian life, in a Christian's life. But then they don't have any reason for why they're actually doing it. If you ask them, why on earth are you going to drink and get drunk like every single weekend and even on weekdays, they have no reason for it. So a lot of times, a lot of people don't live on these pure reasons. Is that bad? Is that good? Well, it's it's up to debate, but it does seem to suggest that at least most of us accept, or at least in society, atheists do accept that beliefs of existential significance do not need a full-on argument to support. And in the same way, some people could believe in God without needing to have full-on arguments and could still be a very, not necessarily reasonable, because that probably wouldn't be the right word to do it, but a completely justified life as well or at least a pretty decent life as well and there's that kind of that flip side which can be considered i think most people like theists or atheists like they they're gonna have their beliefs without any form of argument so like i think about like the atheists that I, it's obviously different in like this online sphere we're looking at people like debating god's existence but like the atheists i know 
um, that are my friends, a lot of them aren't like, well, yeah, I just found that problem of evil really disturbing or um, the incoherence of God or something. They're just like, yeah, I'm just an atheist. I just don't believe in God. Um, and there's not really like they've really like combed the depths of the literature and it goes both ways. So both we have people that will go both ways without like really like diving into like apologetics or like counter apologetics or things like that. And that's fine. It's just like it just shows that it's not necessary. Like there's a lot of people who believe in God um, that just don't that have never heard of the clum or anything like that so and that's fine i think in my opinion obviously i think it's helpful and i think that we should study these things but you know you don't, we don't have to i definitely agree with that and and perhaps just one thing you could perhaps pick upon and that's the last thing i kind of say about the sections is the idea where he says if nick knows i would know too if god exists and i, I was looking at that i'm like well surely that's not the case i mean a lot of people don't believe in vaccines being effective and other people believe in vaccines are effective, but surely it's either vaccines are effective or vaccines are not effective. Like you can't say mm -hmm. something is either right or wrong just because I don't know it as well, or I don't have the same belief about it as someone else. And that just seems like quite a horrible idea or something to believe in because someone with flat earth might say, well, well, flat earth clearly is correct. Well, because if I know it, well, he might should, or he should know it as well. I mean, that such reasoning just isn't correct and perhaps mm -hmm. isn't really good like in that perspective. Yeah, I think all you have to do is just show that there's plausible reasons for God to remain hidden to some degree, and Dan's argument would be in a lot of trouble here um, if he's even making an argument. So, yeah. Theism is not knowledge. It is faith. The Bible even says in Hebrews 11.6, he who comes to God must believe that he exists. Belief is not knowledge. Atheism is the lack of that belief. Atheism just simply means not theism or not belief. If the religions of the world were a list of TV channels on the screen that you could pick, oh, there's Buddhism, Hinduism, there's Catholicism. If there was a huge list like a menu, atheism would not be on that list. Atheism is the off button. Atheism is none of the above. There's that old joke that if atheism is a religion, then baldness is a hair color. Or as Bill Maher said, abstinence is a sex position. Uh, so it follows that I don't have the burden of proof tonight. I don't have to prove anything as an atheist. In any debate, in any trial, the one who makes the charge has the burden of proof. All I have to do tonight as the defense attorney is to show reasonable doubt. Okay, um, lots here. So where do, you, where do you want to go with this, Josh? Well, I think that it is a very interesting thing when atheists claim um, atheism is a lack of belief, because I don't really think it justifies or matches up with the arguments that atheists make. For example, everything that um, Dan Barker is going to say later, like the incoherence of God or the problem of evil, point towards the conclusion that there is no God or it is improbable that God exists. Such a conclusion is incompatible with the idea that, oh, it's just a lack of belief, because surely you can't look at the logical problem of evil, get to the conclusion there is no God, and then go around and say, well, I just believe that God may or may not exist. I do not have a belief about God. That will go against your own argument that you use. And as a result, I think that there might be some cognitive dissonance when atheists do indeed say, oh, oh, we just lack a belief. And in fact, in order to reach that position, the atheist who says atheism is just a lack of belief, probably to be most consistent, should just not use any arguments at all and just say, well, I just want to withhold my beliefs from any arguments in, in the entire world discussing the existence of God or the non-existence of God and say, well, I'm, my belief, my atheism is not a result of these arguments. And that is perhaps the only way they can sustain the idea that, well, my atheism is just a lack of belief. Hmm. That's helpful. I think that if Dan's going to argue that, like, I think on a good point here, Josh, where saying that he just lacks a belief, then like if Dan is right, we should really just be 50-50 on if God exists. Uh, if he's not making any positive arguments to say there is no God, he's just saying like the theistic arguments fail. But then if there's no reason to believe that God exists, there's also no reason to believe that God does not exist. 
we should just be 50 50 on this and when we're looking at like our moral philosophy and things we should kind of come from that perspective like well maybe he does maybe he doesn't um things like this but the problem i think with like the lack of belief idea is a lot of people uh who and if you just want a lack of belief like that's fine like i don't feel like i need to like make you like go one way or the other but then like it seems like a lot of people who just say they lack belief will base like their moral philosophy and their epistemology and other things based on the idea that like god does not exist but then they'll say like no i just lack a belief which seems to be like 50 50 to me so just it seems inconsistent to me and then i always wonder like should we actually presume atheism because i think of things like the intuitiveness of theism and just personal experience and most people over time believing in god it seems like theism is the more intuitive position in my opinion than atheism so that's just a couple things i have here <laughs> And I think one last thing is to really question the definition of faith, because I think a lot of times atheists use faith as something where they could just bash around and say, oh, you're just believing in faith. That's a really bad thing. But it never appeared to me, or at least in my terminology or my usage in my culture, that that faith is a bad thing. I think faith is a very beneficial thing and, and it's something very reasonable. Of course, it defines how you're using the word faith. If it means faith is in I don't care about any single argument, I don't care about science, I'm going to believe whatever I want. Maybe that could say, well, that's a bit dangerous. But at the same time, I don't think that that's how people use faith. So as a result, I think that there is indeed a balance where the use of faith theories are just horribly misused and taken out of context, perhaps. Mm, yeah, that's super helpful, Josh. Thanks. I'm an atheist because, first, there's a lack of even a coherent definition of a god. Most believers, for example, say God is a spirit. But what does that word spirit actually mean? It's never been defined in positive terms. If you can't define what these words are, you may as well say God is a blister doodle. Many definitions of God contain mutually exclusive characteristics, such as omniscience versus omnipotence, or omnipotence versus omnibenevolence, or free will versus omnipotence, uh, free will versus omniscience. In my book, Free Will Explained, I discuss the free will argument for the non-existence of God, F-A-N-G, thing. If you know the future, you cannot have free will. You can't make any decisions because the future to you is fixed. Therefore, if God is defined as a personal being with free will and he knows the future, then he cannot exist by definition. Arguing for a God with these incompatible properties is like arguing for a merry bachelor if you can't define it how can it exist then okay what do you think about dan's ideas on the incoherence of god first i have to say that if he was a youtuber he would be very proud that he just shoves his books and his references into everything i don't think i've seen a single section where he hasn't like shouted given a shout out to his own books and just kind of reminds it of my own videos where i constantly say please like and subscribe just constantly shouting out your own things so i think he'll make a very very good youtuber on that form but Apart from that invitation to be a YouTuber, if you're watching this, Dan, I think that you don't really need to know everything about God to be a Christian or know everything about a certain thing to argue for it. For example, you don't need a, a my, my mother doesn't need to know everything about the atomic structure of one of her diamond rings in order to know that the diamond ring exists. You don't need to know every single thing about everything to accept certain beliefs. We don't need to know like the exact molecules of how atoms decay in order to understand that an atomic bomb did indeed explode over Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. So the idea that if you can't define it, how can it exist just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, this is one of these points where Dan's going to throw so much out. So it's just not worth responding to everything. But I do think we can talk about like the idea of like, how could God be free if he knows like what he's going to freely choose to do? And what I'm going to say here is Dan just doesn't lay out an argument like he just doesn't present like a like syllogisms or anything like that he's just like yeah we have this problem and i just kind of i'm gonna just deny that because i don't think that foreknowledge equates to like determinism it's like there's different views on the table with regards to like god's foreknowledge like is it simple foreknowledge is it molinism like there's these different options on the table um so or you could say like god is timeless like there's just different options here so i don't think 
he hasn't really shown for any, he hasn't shown the contradiction. He just says that well, you know, there could be this problem here between like God being free and foreknowing what he frees to freely chooses to do like well why can't god just foreknow what he freely chooses to do like i just don't see the problem there and it hasn't given me, me any reason to doubt this intuition like i just don't see a problem i definitely agree with you on this idea that free will and foreknowledge are not contradictory because you could think about our knowledge and our actions in the future perhaps as like kind of modus ponens arguments like if i if i woke up on time tomorrow i would eat breakfast of course me eating breakfast isn't totally defined by or are tied down to me waking up on time but but perhaps you can tie in other like kind of reasons why you might eat breakfast, like I'm hungry and all these other ideas. Now, assuming God is omniscient, then he knows all those ifs, which follows that if he knows all those ifs, then you could have you could know also what the antecedent, I think, no, the consequent is. So as a result, if you just view knowledge like that or perhaps knowledge about the future like that, then perhaps you could have a very good reason to be able to understand the future or know the future without needing to have foretold or have a complete control over the future or not necessarily control. That might not be the best word about God's power and all those stuff, but you could know the future without interfering with free will. And that's definitely not a contradiction in, in ideas. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. I appreciate that. Cause one of these things I want to emphasize again, as we're listening to Dan's opening statement is he doesn't defend much. He just, he's going to throw things out. And that's why we're not going to respond to everything Dan says, especially when we get to like biblical violence. Cause he just throws all these things out. He makes all these assumptions, assumes these are all true and he doesn't really defend them. Um, so we're trying to give like a broad overview of things here. So yeah. It'll show up. Don't worry. Then there's a lack of a good evidence for a God. We didn't hear any evidence tonight. We just heard words. If there were a good evidence for a God, Think about it. By now, someone would have won the Nobel Prize for pointing out the existence of some hitherto unknown force in the cosmos. Any scientist in the world would jump at a chance to prove such a thing. There is no good evidence for a God. The Bible, as we will see, is not good evidence, and miracle reports are just stories. There's also a lack of good arguments. Bertrand Russell said, most theological arguments, like the design argument, cosmological, ontological, moral, and so on, they simply boil down to bad grammar, bad logic. We've heard some of that tonight, some bad logic and equivocation and category errors in Nick's statements. Most of them begged the question. When the ancients heard the thunder and they saw the lightning in the sky, the only way they could explain it was by invoking some agency like Thor or Zeus. But now that we know something about electricity and the weather, we don't need those gods to fill those gaps in our knowledge. When those gaps close, those gods die. There's still a lot of gaps, and that's what drives science. But to throw up our hands and say, Thor did it or God did it, well, that's just laziness. Then there's a lack. Okay, what do you want to say here, Josh? I have a lot of things I've put on in my notes, and I honestly, I honestly don't know how much I should actually say, though. Though perhaps the first place uh, to start off may be the idea that just because people don't believe in it or just that you don't accept them doesn't mean they're good arguments. For example, Christians have demonstrated that it's very probable that God exists, maybe not 100% proves, but that that's fine as well. You could have it like most scientific principles aren't based on proofs, but they're based on probability. You have water boils at 100 degrees. That's most commonly accepted by, well, I think the majority of people living today, that's not a hundred that's not a deductive proof, that's an inductive reasoning, which means it's not at a hundred percent of probability, but people can still believe in it. And I think Christians have done very, very well to make it at least very probable that God exists. If not, they've proved it with some ontological argument. But I think that someone else could say, well, maybe they aren't probable, then well, maybe be your guest to believe that you have freedom to believe whatever you want to believe. But at the same time, it still doesn't change the fact that things are, well, theism is very probable. So I don't necessarily think that the idea that just because someone hasn't pulled out the hat to say, I've proved God, that kind of demand for that evidence of someone saying, I proved God, I'll win the Nobel Prize, is just completely misled. And he just doesn't really know exactly what he's asking for. Because if you're looking for 
someone to say, well, oh, God can only be believed in when someone wins a Nobel Prize and says, I got the belief of God proved out on this piece of paper. Sorry, my, my hand's not on the screen, but I got this piece of paper. I proved God. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to, to say this, Dan, but your expectations are just horribly misguided. And that's probably the first thing we could say about um, his idea. Yeah, I would add, I just add here, like scientific theory, like they don't rely on proofs. Like I was listening to a lecture from the Royal Institution on, I believe it was about like the early moments of the Big Bang. And the person talking about how they're just waiting potentially for another just a like complete overturning of like the standard model of like physics and like um like Big Bang cosmology and things because of problems with like quantum mechanics and quantum gravity and things. So science doesn't rely on proofs. Like there's no proofs on like how the universe like expanded in the beginning and like big bang got like we haven't proved that it's just the best explanation given the data at the moment which that scientist in that lecture which i'm forgetting who wrote it like he realized like this is radically contingent the, the theory could be completely overturned so if we need 100 percent proof well i don't know what we're actually going to believe because we can't really believe big bang because cosmology because there's doubts about how that's going to be rectified with like quantum mechanics there's not really 100 percent proofs about really anything outside of like our own existence. So that's one thing I'm worried about. And then Dan uses like one of the things I found really ironic is he complains about Nick's arguments. And Nick uses like domestic arguments to argue for God's existence. He complains about them using just words, but everything else Dan said to this point is just words. Like, so I don't see like, if we're going to throw out all Nick's arguments because they're just semantics, we should do the same with Dan's. So. <laughs> and I think that is definitely something, uh, we could talk about a bit more because I think that idea of the kind of the standards here is very interesting. I don't like raising double standards most of the time, but it's something that it's very interesting and very important to keep in the back of the mind. While while saying that it's double standards, it's not always the best way to go around doing things. I don't think that's exactly what we're doing here. But there is always there's this idea which you say that if you are going to use a certain standard or are you if you're going to accept a certain criticism for someone's worldview, you need to also act upon that standard with everything else you believe in. And I think there's something which I'm very worried about is that if we do indeed act at the standard at which the atheists often use towards Christian arguments to say, well, now there is no God or this argument is absolutely horrible without saying maybe it is correct. For example, if you have a probabilistic formulation of the Kalam, I think that that is definitely very uh, strong. Even if you don't accept ultimately the conclusion, you can accept that it's a very probabilistic um, argument or a very probable argument. And if you just argue at that level and you're just demanding for proof 100 percent, as you say, then your entire worldview, your entire belief would just completely collapse and there would be absolutely nowhere from which uh, you could proceed from. And perhaps to build on your other point about uh, grammar, this is one thing which I got very irritated perhaps when I was looking at Dan's statement because I honestly didn't know what he was talking about. He, of course, he refers to Russell, but talking about bad grammar is something which has been discussed by not only Russell, but also by Wittgenstein, early Wittgenstein, that is, and not later Wittgenstein, and also A.J. Ayer. But the problem with that further is that each of them have individual differences in their arguments. So when he just says, Bertrand Russell said this is bad grammar, he's referring to the logical positivists, but unless he actually develops an argument, it's impossible to know actually what he's saying. Because to respond to what Bertrand Russell may say in that branch of the logical positivists, that would not respond to what A.J. Ayer is saying, or um, early Wittgenstein, and then you could turn to later Wittgenstein, and then everything goes absolutely completely mayhem. And while, of course, they're mainly similar, what they're all saying, there are those minute differences. And the fact that he just throw like just throwing names all around, all around the place just doesn't really help anyone, but add further confusion to the discussion, which I think is just very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful, Josh. And I don't really have too much else to add on this point. So do you have anything else you want to say before we move on to this next section? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there's nothing much because I think I'll talk about the that point in uh, a bit of a later discussion, maybe. 
All right, sounds good. We'll get it to the next clip then. There's a lack of agreement among believers about the nature and the moral principles of this God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, let there be no divisions among you. And yet the religions of the world, especially Christianity, are hopelessly fractured into divisive camps. Believers have killed each other over trivial, irrelevant doctrinal differences. Paul also said, God is not the author of confusion. But can you think of a single book that's caused more confusion than the Bible? It's confusing. They're split. They don't even offer to us a coherent definition or even an agreement among themselves. You believers should first get your act together before you start talking to us non-believers. Name any moral issue that society is struggling with right now. Name it. Uh, birth control, abortion, the war, doctor assisted suicide. Uh, you can make a big long list. We're struggling with these issues. You will find good Bible-believing, church-going Christians on both sides of those controversies. The Bible is worthless as a moral guide. All right, what do you think here on the idea of biblical confusion? I think the idea of biblical confusion is just absolutely horribly put together by by Dan because everything has multiple dis disagreements. I don't, I personally don't see how that's a possible problem. And I think he, and this is the problem about just taking verses out of context. I and makes me really question whether Dan's actually even read the Bible in a coherent way without just trying to read his own narrative into the book. And I think the idea of what Paul is saying is not saying let there not be disagreements, but rather the idea that let there not be disagreements, which lead to people losing their faith. And those are very, very different ideas. So it's very important that we take things in their context and not take them out of context, because that just leads to absolute mayhem and misinterpretation of almost everything. Because if you just take sentence out of everything, you could almost make you could make the Bible justify almost anything. If And in fact, you can make any book justify almost anything if you just want to take sentences here and there to prove your own points. I think that's helpful, Josh, because I... If you watch the debate between Dan Barker and Randall Rouser on like the problem of like biblical violence, Randall talks about this where Dan's just going to quote Bible verses out of context to make the points he wants to make. And like, if you want to do that, like, that's fine, Dan. Maybe that'll help your arguments, but that's not a good way of like hermeneutically like understanding the text. And like, here's that's a lot of what Dan's going to do, especially when you get to like biblical violence. And I'm not persuaded that like disagreement and dialogue is a bad thing. Like, I think like working through like difficult, like theological issues and moral issues, like these are good things to do. Like moral progress is a good thing. A deeper understanding of the Bible is a good thing. And when we do it together, we build deeper relationships. So it's a good thing. And yes, there's been like consequences as Christians have killed each other in the process, but I think it's good to have disagreements and to like wrestle through these things together. And while there's often a lot of disagreement on like natures of questions like baptism or like faith and things like this, or like, um, like sin and evil and whatnot, there's a lot of unity on the essentials. Like even when you look at like Catholicism or Orthodoxy or Protestants, like on the ideas of like the death and resurrection of Christ, um, the Trinity and the importance of baptism and things like this. So while there's also disagreement on a lot of small things, there's a lot of unity on a lot of major issues typically. So I'm just not a big fan of what Dan's saying here. I completely agree with you. And I think that the idea that confusions are harmful is is definitely wrong because as you've said previously about, about the Big Bang, is that science, like you could name the amount of different uh, cosmological structures or models of the beginning of the universe, and you could name at least five or six of them, which all seem to have somewhat consistent mathematics within them, but then they are completely contradictory to each other. So as a result, like the, the idea that there are confusions, therefore the thing is wrong, is, is it's just completely absurd because we all know the universe began to exist or exists in some way. If you could just say, well, okay, now the fact that the, it, the beginning of the universe is all messed up, now the universe doesn't exist, that's not very a very good argument. And and in the same sense, we have to accept that these conclusions or these arguments may go against each other, but that doesn't mean that the entire pursuit is completely meaningless. We, we make the most of these pursuits in order to get towards the truth or get a deeper understanding of the world and how we're meant to live in it. And, and I think if, if it helps these goals, then 
then all the confu- more the more confusion, the better, or the more disagreements instead of confusion. I think he's using the wrong words here, but the more disagreements, the better, perhaps. Mm, yeah, that's well said. Then, of course, there's the lack of a good reply to the problem of evil. I know there's some theologies out there, but they're not good replies. All you have to do is walk into any children's hospital, and you know that a good God does not exist. Maybe an evil God exists, and Nick is right about that, but a good God does not exist. Those parents are praying desperately for their, ch- for their children to survive, and yet those kids are dying at the same cruel, random rate of chance. Then, of course, there's no need for a God. Hundreds of millions of good people in this country alone, in the world, lead loving, joyful, moral, charitable, purposeful, and hopeful lives without believing in the supernatural world. My book, Mere Morality, explains how anyone can be good, with or without a God. You don't need a God for that. But what are we really talking about here tonight? Okay, before we get into what we're really talking about here tonight, let's look at, um, what do you think here, Josh, with regards to the problem of evil? Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps before we talk about uh, the problem of evil, uh, perhaps we could talk about kind of the usefulness of Christianity as a moral guide or or kind of the usefulness of Christianity at all, as all, because he raised this in both his last section and also this section. And the idea that the Bible is worthless or not helpful as a moral guide, people could live good lives without being a Christian, I think it's just completely misguided. I, I think whether you like it or not, it is a solid fact that Western civilization is built upon Judeo-Christian roots. And even the most atheistic person living in, in America is living a Judeo-Christian life. And even the people in China are still living a Judeo-Christian life. Why is this the case? Well, I think the reason why people, you could say, they are ultimately living a Christian life, even though they're not Christian, and in fact, do not even know anything about Christ, is because when you raise to them the story of Christ, they are unable to raise a better story or a better moral exemplar than that of Jesus Christ. Because, because at the end of the day, and I think Aristotle and um, McIntyre get this correct, is that moral lives and actions are based on imitation. We look at role models whom we can follow, and we try to live that out in our lives. And unless someone can then raise to us a role model who is greater, more beautiful, and more holy, and more perfect than that of Christ, whether you believe Christ existed or not, unless you can replace that story with something better, then it's impossible to say you're not living a Christian life because you're still working up towards the standards of that model you set for yourself. And furthermore, when people abandoned the Bible, what exactly happened? We didn't see a general trend of, oh, we've gotten rid of Christianity now or religion and everything's all good now. You, what you see is Mao's China, where 55 million people die and, some, and a majority of them starve to death within three years. We look at Soviet Russia, at least 6 million people die in the Ukraine from starvation. And then another 5 million or so get killed in purges, needless purges for no reason. And, and this goes on and on of what tragedies occurred when the Bible was completely thrown into the gutter. So the idea that the Bible is a worthless moral guide just seems so ignorant to to historical evidence, which is just quite an unfortunate fact. And I think is just some people really have to just open their eyes to the sociological and historical situation in the world just to realize how incorrect what Dan Barkley is actually saying here when he says Christianity is worthless. And I'm sorry I went on a bit of a tangent here, but I suppose now we can talk a bit about the, the problem of evil that he raises. What are your thoughts, Zach? Yeah, so once again, Dan just makes kind of a, an emotional appeal almost. There's no actual arguments here. Like he says, yeah, there's the odysseys, but they're all trash. Like, come on, look at like a child hospital. And like, there's just an emotional appeal. Like he's not making an argument here. Um, So I'm just like, Dan, what are you, like, I'm just not really sure what he's doing because he's just kind of like, again, he's just throwing these things out. He's not defending them. Um, And like, there's many potential reasons to like, for God to allow, like even that potential, potential evil, like soul building or freedom. And Dan doesn't just, he doesn't like give them any attention. He just kind of throws this out here. So I just don't even feel like, like, I don't feel like it's worth even, like, trying to, like, 
defend like um like why is there child cancer because Dan doesn't even try to like present an argument um so i'm just that's how i feel about this is just like he doesn't really it's yeah Mm -hmm. i definitely agree with you and i i think that his entire idea is just kind of just kind of distract us from the real point of the debate though i do think that just by a a debate a discussion is the idea of um the creation of, of of an evil god and if you read the title of the debate does god exist you realize that if if he does indeed accept the existence of an evil god, Nick technically wins the debate. So if you look at it formally from the debate perspective, if if Dan accepts the existence of an evil god, Nick still wins and he loses the debate. And of course, I don't like debates because people win and lose at the end of them. But I do think that is just something quite interesting to see how Dan would respond if Nick just walked up and say, well, maybe an evil god exists, but I still win the debate. That would actually be perhaps quite funny and see how that mm-hmm. works out, though. Perhaps about um, natural evil. I, I have been thinking about this recently, and that might be what Dan is trying to refer to, although, of course, emotional appeal just makes his argument way less tasteful, perhaps, because it doesn't have a syllogism. Perhaps one of the reasons why, and I've been thinking about this, and I'm not sure whether it's how good this theodicy is, but I, you could perhaps comment on them, but it's, it's the mm-hmm. idea that if the, go- if the world was completely perfect, and that means it could have moral evil in it, but like naturally everything was completely perfect, there would be no need for a god because, well, the world is completely good. Everyone's just enjoying life or at least enjoying life in the sense of the world. There would be no need to believe in a god. But the purpose of the world is indeed for people to believe in a god. So that, so that, so a good world, and this is the perfect natural world, like regardless of what moral evil there is, would actually defeat the purpose of a good world such that a perfect naturally, a naturally perfect world cannot consistently be a good world because it will not fulfill its purpose. And as a result, in order for the world to be good, it actually has to have natural evils in it to a significant degree, such that the world needs God. And and you could say, well, okay, this seems a bit weird. Why would God create a a bad world just for us to worship him? But if we accept the premises of the Christian tradition and the Christian beliefs, then I think that this argument actually solves natural evil, even if you say, well, there's loads of natural evil here. And I'm not saying it's a good one, but feel free to let me know your thoughts about this approach. Yeah, I think there's something good here because... When we look at the problem of evil, we have to think about what kind of world would we expect if God exists. And like when I reflect on like potential, like obviously like what God could do, it seems like to me like it seems like better to have a world with like some evil in it, at least for a temporary amount of time, for things like you're talking about, Josh, for us like coming to know God, or us for to grow in character, or for things such as like human relationships with each other to like grow and progress in relationships with say like ourselves or with God. Uh, so I think when we're looking at the problem of evil. Like we would ex- probably expect God to create a world with some evil. It seems intuitively better for evil to be overcome for then there to just be like no evil at all. So I like what you're saying, Josh, because it helps like flesh out that intuition that of thinking about like what would we expect the world to look like if God exists? So and he decides to create a world. So mm-hmm. I think that's a, definitely a very good idea, and I completely agree with you on that. Awesome. Let's get into this last clip. This is a longer one where Dan's gonna talk about the problem of biblical violence and things like that. If it weren't for the Bible, Nick would not be up here tonight. The Christian God is the deity who's revealed in the Bible, but the Bible is an unreliable guide to truth. It is also unreliable in its moral claims. Most Christians are good people. I'm sure Nick is a really good person, but the God they worship is not. The God of the Bible is morally corrupt. The Bible has a lot of unbelievable stories, talking snakes, wizards, sorcerers, demons, the Nile turning into blood, the sun standing still, millions of animal species floating in one large box and so on. That all sounds kind of crazy, but actually, I think we should read the Bible. A.A. Milne said, the Old Testament is responsible for more atheism than any book ever written. Isaac Asimov agreed. Properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. 
if you actually read it, and I challenge you to read the Bible, you will see that the Bible is contradictory, unhistorical, unscientific, and morally corrupt. The Bible says God is good, but the Bible shows that he is not, that fictional character is not. If a good tree can't bring forth evil fruit, it follows that a good God who is evil not only does not exist, but like a married bachelor, cannot exist. The alpha male deity in the Bible reflects the fears, the ignorance, the territorialism, the violence of the patriarchal Israelites who wanted to preserve their property, including their slaves and their wives. Richard Dawkins got it right. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And Richard is right. Richard asked me to document each of those nasty adjectives, so it became a book, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, with more than 1,500 passages describing those exact characteristics by God's own words and actions. Here's just a few examples. God is an ethnic cleanser. You shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land, for I have given you the land to possess. Utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant. This is God speaking. God is genocidal. You must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. So they utterly destroyed the men, women, little ones of every city and left none to remain. There are dozens of passages like this in the Bible where God commanded, condoned, or committed genocide. God is unjust. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents. That's just wrong. That is morally wrong. God is homophobic. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That should settle it right there. If the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, as it does, then the Bible is wrong, not homosexuality. Those bigoted men who wrote those words were cruel and violent. God is capriciously malevolent. Now, there's Job with his friends. Here's the most damning verse in the entire Bible, Job 2.3. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. God confessed he tortured a good man and killed his children for no reason. That is senseless first-degree murder and mayhem. And yet Nick worships this malevolent God who would do something like that. God is abortocidal. Because she has rebelled against her God, the little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. That's the God of the Bible. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry. God is neither pro-choice nor pro-life in the Bible. He's the greatest abortionist in history. Well, what about Jesus? Wasn't he nicer than the Old Testament monster? Well, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. I think the New Testament is a big missed opportunity. Jesus should have said, I apologize for my dad. He was a bloodthirsty, sexist jerk. Instead, Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. If this cartoon villain really did exist, he would not be worthy of my admiration, much less my worship. The God of the Bible describes himself, actually, as evil. I don't have time to go through them all, but in the Bible, God says, I make peace, I create evil. Thus saith the Lord, I will bring evil upon this place. There are verses and verses all through the scripture showing God explicitly committing evil, an evil, evil Lord doing evil things. In his own words, evil. And look at that last verse. Shall we receive good at the hands of God and shall we not receive evil? In that same verse, God is portrayed, portrayed as both good and evil. He's a married bachelor. He also describes himself as a terrorist, and there's no time to go through all this, but there are dozens of passages where a terror from God fell on the cities. Terror, terror, terror of God all through the Bible. Hide from the terror of the Lord. So in the Bible, God calls himself an evil terrorist by his own words. Those are not my words. Since God is described as an evil good person, it follows that the biblical God, at least, cannot exist. Those passages I read are just a tiny sample, but you don't have to buy my book. You can find them for free at unpleasantgod.ffrf.org. Got that down. You can find all those verses and more. I haven't mentioned the contradictions. Something's passing here. The historical and scientific mistakes. I wish we had time for all that. But we've seen enough to ask this simple question. What do you think is more likely? that the Bible is the product of an immaterial, supernatural, transcendent creator, or that it's the product of patriarchal priests and fearful prophets. Since there is no coherent definition, and there's no good evidence, and there's no good argument, and since there's no agreement among believers, 
there's no good reply to the problem of evil. There's no need for a God. And since the biblical God in particular is discrepantly good and evil, it makes perfect sense not to believe in the existence of such a creature. So you're the jury. My job is just to raise some reasonable doubt. His job is to prove that God exists. He's given us some words, and during rebuttal time, I will show that uh, there are many logical and category error and equivocation mistakes in some of the things you said tonight. Aristotle was brilliant, but you admit he got a lot of things wrong, and you repeated some of his errors tonight. So uh, let's wait till the end of tonight, and then we'll ask the jury for a verdict. Thank you. Okay, we're at the end here. He threw a lot about like the problem of like biblical violence and other questions regarding like the ethics of the Old Testament. So, Josh, where do you want to take this? I think the first place to go to is actually to cosmic skeptic, and I actually do have quite a lot of respect for the lad, you know. And and I think that if you start off with the assumption that God is actually an all-loving being, then you then you, you the the perspective that you have to a lot of what he says does indeed change significantly. Instead of instead of just uh, warranting uh, the destruction of a city, that city deserves that suffering and. And in the same way, that is a better way to look at it if you want to uh, understand the Bible in the correct sense. Now, of course, there's different ways you can look at it and different ways you can approach it. But I think that if you have the right perspective to the biblical text, then you understand the correct thing. And if you just take the worst possible approach to it, then, of course, you're going to be able to find problems. But as we've said before, everything has to be read in context, in context of God, in context of everything else. And if you want to just already get rid of if you're going to start off by saying the Bible is bad because God doesn't exist, well, you've gotten the really, or God is evil, then you've just approached it in a completely wrong direction already. It's like, for example, if God does not exist, then well, what's the point of discussing what the contradictions are in the Bible? Because if you start off with God not existing, then, well, I mean, the Bible, you could just throw that away already. So, so there's perhaps a bit of a difference here in that his direction of argumentation and reasoning might be a bit off above the fact that he doesn't really look at the arguments in the straightest way possible. I think that's helpful because I'm worried that Dan's just anomaly mongering here. So take, for example, um, let's say that, like we're debating does God exist and Nick just attacks evolution the whole time. So Nick says, hey, like we have this problem with evolution. There's like this big gap in this fossil record, perhaps. And I'm just using this as an example. Maybe I'm wrong here. Um, but like there's this big problem and like we can't explain this if evolution is true. Um, well, Dan could come up and say, well, hey, I, we, I have all this positive evidence against God. Like, look at the things like the problem of evil or like the simplicity of atheism or whatnot. Um, so, like, maybe there's this problem, but, like, we shouldn't just throw out everything because of this one problem. Um, and I think that's a fair response. In the same way, like, as a Christian and as a theist, like, we have a bunch of, like, we say, like, we have arguments to have, like, show that, like, God is perfect. We have good things to think about, like, the resurrection and things like that. Like that. And we come to this problem of, like, biblical violence. This seems to me like it'd be like a minor issue. Like it'd be like equivalent to like there being like a gap in the fossil record where there's something that needs to be explained, but we shouldn't throw out everything because of this one problem. And that's my problem in thrust with Dan's argument is he's taking the most uncharitable position possible and just saying like, well, there's no way we can reconcile these things. And I just want to say, hold up. We have like this good account that like good reason to think that God is perfect given like natural theology and start understanding things like moral intuition. And we also have like good arguments for God's existence and like the resurrection. So should I throw out all of that because of this one problem? And I'm kind of like, well, I think not. Like, there's going to be an answer to this problem. And maybe, um, you know, like, it's probably, like, there's different answers. Like, you check out Randall Rouser's book on Jesus Loves the Canaanites. Um, or, like, there's great defenses, like, of more, like, traditional views, like Paul Copian's view on, like, is God a moral monster? So I just don't see, like, why we should throw everything out because of this one, like, smaller issue. <laughs> I definitely agree with you. And I think that, and I, I definitely agree with you on the point that if you start off with the existence of God, or at least you start off with the existence of God, then the significance of, um, the significance of what do you call it? The significance of the 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 significance of these moral objections, or at least this problem of moral evil in the Bible, or at least this moral this poorly this evil God perhaps in the Bible 
is um less is is not as strong because I think that the fundamental problem here is if you start off with the perfect God, then well, what exactly are you going to do? Because if Dan Barker dies and suddenly ends up in heaven, what is the first thing he's going to do? Just say, oh, you're a very very bad God, and just like march himself all the way down to hell. I I don't necessarily think that that is exactly what's going to happen there. So I think ultimately what is happening is that he perhaps just should be looking at it from a more reasonable perspective. And as you say, give it the most charitable perspective, because that's the only way in which you can look at the truth. Because if you want to take it the opposite way around and aren't acting charitably, then yes, you could probably find arguments and problems with almost every single argument ever made in the history of the world, apart from maybe the Kohito. But at the same time, that does not necessarily mean that then, well, all other arguments are bad just because you could find problems in them. Arguments are there. Yes, you might find problems in them. But that at the end of the day, the conclusion should be, or the, what we're trying to get at is, well, is it more probably true that Proposition X is more true than Proposition Y or the, the falsity of X? And if that's the case, then, well, I think that that is exactly how we should go around doing things. And I think that what Dan is doing is just getting rid of this kind of argumentative kind of approach or getting rid of this kind of methodology. And it's just taken a very unreasonable standard, which leads to most of the problems that he encounters. And I'm, I don't want to say the guy's um, being dishonest, but I just think that perhaps if he changes the approach to the entire a discussion about apologetics and the God as a whole, then maybe he will have a bit a better understanding and a clearer understanding of the biblical text. And that will probably just help himself as well in understanding the works. I think it'd be helpful for people, if you're curious, like check out Randall Rouser's debate with uh, Dan on this topic, it's on, I think, Capturing Christianity, so it's really helpful, and you can see Randall's gonna um, challenge Dan on a lot of things, where, like, even, like, the Psalms, where, like, there's a lot of verses where Dan's gonna quote, and it seems like they're very much out of context, and they're just trying to, like, make points that he wants to make, rather than, like, what they're actually saying, like, giving their, like, context, and, like, Josh and I are gonna respond to all of them, or really any of them, because when you just throw a bunch of things out, it's not worth, like, responding to, like, every little piece, in my opinion, so, yeah, that's really helpful, so thanks, Josh. No Do you anything else you want to add, Josh, before we wrap up here? No, I think everything's all uh, all good here. I think that's everything on my yeah. part. Yeah, I hope that people listening, you found this edifying. And to Dan, if you ever listen to this, like, I hope you found this edifying. This isn't like we're trying to like disprove or debunk someone, but rather just like seeking truth and trying to understand things. And Dan has a big influence. So he wanted to like pull Dan and what he has to say and look at his case against God. So yeah, this has been super helpful. So Josh, thank you for coming on. You're welcome. I'm always happy to be here. It's always a great, it's always a pleasure. Yes, and thank you so much, everyone, for coming in, for Harry and Frank and everyone else. Um, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. I hope you have a good one. If you enjoyed the channel, value what we do, uh, consider subscribing, leaving a like, all that fun stuff. And if you really value our content, become a patron at patreon.com slash So, yeah, thanks, everyone. Have a good one, and God bless.